Uh, we are in this series, uh, this uh, series of messages, uh, and it's called Epic. And it's called Epic because what we are doing is we have been looking at essential theology, exploring the essential theology of the Christian faith through, or as revealed in, the greatest story ever told. And that is the story of the Bible. And so from Genesis to Revelation, there is a story that unfolds. It is God's story. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to be able to take the opportunity to share with you the the foundational doctrines or the foundational theological uh, beliefs of our church, of the, the, the Christian faith, uh, and but to do so in a way that helps to tell the story of God. So if you remember, we started with the Bible, because that's where we get the story from. Remember that? So bibliology, we talked about uh, what does it look like to, to read the Bible? Why do we have 66 books and not 67? What does it mean it's inspired and, and inerrant and all that? And why is that foundational? And then, of course, we started to introduce ourselves to the characters in this grand epic story. And, of course, first and foremost is God the Father. So we looked at many of his attributes. And now, of course, what would follow next would be God the Son, and that's Jesus. We're going to see him in a few weeks. We're going to meet him, the main character in our our story, if you will, on that Sunday right before Christmas. Uh, But then, of course, we talked about the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? God, the Holy Spirit, and and so a very important, a crucial character, if you will, in our story and how we live the Christian life. And then, of course, we learn more about other characters in this grand epic story, the angels and the demons, including our enemy, Satan, who was the grandest and most beautiful, we believe, of all of the angels who fell in rebellion. But then, of course, we also met ourselves, didn't we? We are characters in this story because you are all characters, yeah, I get that. Okay. You're all a bunch of characters. But see, it's funny that you didn't get that because you're all just like, well, no, I mean, I'm, I'm not a character, right? But we are in this story. You know that when you pick up the Bible, do you know that you're in here and you play an integral part because we are part of God's creation? And so we looked at what does it mean to be created in the image of God? So we looked at um, humanity. So anthropology, the study of people, of humankind. And so we looked at specifically what does it mean to be created in the image of God because we play an important role in the story of Scripture because we are God's beloved and we are part of his creation, created at the end of his days of creation in Genesis, right? He said everything was good, and then he said Adam and Eve, they were very good, right? They're good, and so we know that God has a great desire for us. And so we're being introduced to all of the characters. But then, of course, like in any great story, there's got to be some kind of drama. Am I right? Any great story, whether it's your favorite show that you're binge-watching now or it's your favorite epic movie, a trilogy, whatever it is, the greatest novel you ever read, read, there's always something that comes along in the story and causes a problem. There's always some kind of villain, right? And there's something where everything is great at the beginning, but then somehow somebody does something wrong or something enters into the story to mess us all up. And the whole rest of the story is trying to see the characters, right, relating to one another and to get back to that sense of of beauty and wholeness and perfection, right? And that's the story of Scripture, too. We see that. 
Because we see way back in the beginning of Genesis, the fall of man, we call it, from Adam, Adam and Eve when they sinned against God. And we saw it with Satan, and we see it with Adam and Eve. And so that's when this word sin, that three-letter word, comes into this story and creates all this drama. And then really the whole rest of the story, read the Old Testament, is the people that God chose to represent them on earth. It's their relationship with God, their cycle of, of being obedient, and then they fall into sin and they're disobedient. And then God has to, to, to judge them and discipline them, and then they cry out for mercy, and God is forgiving and merciful, and they are restored, and then the whole cycle starts all over again. And so today we are looking at the essence of that drama, and it is that word sin. Aren't you all glad you showed up today? We're going to talk about sin, but it's important. Let me start with this, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. It's sort of a, a great um, verse that will be a bridge from the last two weeks and help to tell the storyline and where we're going today with sin. Uh, that verse says, in their case, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, the God of this world who we met, right, a couple of weeks ago, that is Satan, our enemy, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers, that's sin, to keep them from doing what? From seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Last week we talked about image. So, so to kind of bridge that gap the last two weeks, we met our adversary, our enemy, Satan, the one who originally rebelled against God and then all of those angels, a third of them, fell and, and rebelled with him and made that choice. And he is now called the God of this world. We can't forget that, that we have a real enemy who has dominion over this world, as God allows, but he has that dominion and power and authority because he took it away from Adam and Eve when they sinned. He has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel because that is what Satan wants to do, is to keep people from seeing the truth about Jesus because he is the image of God. And so today we are going to talk about sin. We're going to talk about what that looks like. We're going to define it, look at the origin of it. We're going to talk about types of sin, uh, not so much individual sins, but the types of sin we see described in the Bible. And then, of course, we're going to look at the consequences of sin. And then what is our response to sin? But here's the promise, church, that we're not going to end today and go have a great fellowship lunch just feeling the weight of sin. Because we will end with a word of hope, amen? Because we know that as believers we have hope. But here's the thing. We need to talk about sin. Why? Because the Bible talks about it. Over 400 times it mentions sin in some varying form. And we know that it is the central issue of drama in the whole story of Scripture. And it is why we need Jesus. It's because of sin. And so, therefore, we need to talk about it. And here's another thing. And maybe you ref- recognize this, maybe you don't. But more and more churches are talking less and less about sin. They're talking about the other half of the gospel. Just meet Jesus, believe in Jesus, and you'll be saved. But saved from what? What is this great life I can have right now? What is it based upon And Where is the change in the transformation? What was there that I now need Jesus for? If Jesus is called the Savior, what are we being saved from? Does that make sense? It sounds so fundamental and rudimentary, but yet the Bible also tells us and it prophesies that in the last days, 
there will be what's called apostasy in the church. And that churches will move further and further away from the truth. That's why here at Trinity, we will always stand on the truth of God's word. We preach through books of the Bible because it is the whole truth of God, right? It's the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, right? So help us. And so that's what we do. And so if we're going to look at the word of God and we're going to look at it in this format, uh, in in this way, for this season, we're going to look at the story of Scripture. We're going to see that the drama unfolds early on, as it usually does, in the form of sin. So we're going to define it. We're going to talk about it. Um, And again, there's a lot, there's going to be a lot of Scripture. If you've noticed that there's been a lot of Scripture in this series, which is great. They'll all be up, most will be up on the, the screen for you. You have those notebooks that you can use, um, and just once you filled it up, then you can take another one, but take a lot of notes, and so we'll move fairly quickly. But when you study systematic theology, like what does the Bible say about angels? What does the Bible say about Jesus? What does it say about salvation, about sin, about the end times, about church? You're studying in a systematic way, which means you're looking at all of the books from Genesis to Revelation, to see what they all say together about one particular subject matter. Because you can't say, let's study angels and say, let's open the book all about the angels. There's no book about angels in the Bible because they're mentioned all over. Actually, in 34 of the books of the Bible, angels are mentioned. So the idea is that's why there's a lot of scripture. Because today we're going to look at sin. We're going to see what does the whole Bible say about sin. It mentions it over 400 times. And we're going to look at every, no, we're not going to look at everyone. But there'll be a lot of scripture today. You know, one of the things that I love about fall, and I know we've kind of made that transition from fall into uh, winter and, and Christmas, from Thanksgiving to Christmas. It happens so quickly, right? One of the things I love about fall are, are the tastes and the smells. I love apples. You like apples? I mean, throughout the year, but there's something about apples in fall, right? You can go pick apples, and apples seem to be in everything, especially in the fall. Right, And, of course, you have apple pie. It just kind of makes you think about Thanksgiving and the fall time. Where, well, apples are important. And um, did you know that, um, that apples can sometimes have worms? You know that? Did you ever find a worm in your apple? Sometimes that can happen. But you know how the worms actually grow in that apple? Did you ever think about how they get in there? Well, I mean, apples are, you know, it, you know something that we love, and, and we know what apples look like, right? And uh, here's a picture of one. And, and, and I chose a picture that had two bites out of it. I think it's significant. Eve took a bite, and she gave one to Adam, too. So lots of times you see the picture with one bite, right? So here it is. We love the apples. But you know, sometimes you can bite into an apple, and there's a worm. But here's what happens. There is a little fly, and they have different names. But the fly will kind of hover around an apple tree grove, and... Uh, it will actually implant its eggs. It's got a sort of this long tubular type of thing attached to it, and it sticks it into a young growing uh, apple or even just a blossom before the apple really gets to develop, and it, 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 it inserts its eggs inside, and then as the apple grows, the eggs grow, and these worms start to grow, and they eat their way from the inside out. Does that sound wonderful? But sin is like that too. See, sin doesn't just come from the outside in. We are born with a sin nature. That is one of the fundamental tenets of the Christian faith. That we are not just sinners because we sin. 
But we are born with a sin nature. Why? So we're going to look at that with our origin after we define it. But it's because we are born with that sin nature that we recognize that sin comes from the inside out. So it's not just a product of our environment or the people we hang around with, although that is very crucial and important to how we live. But we recognize that because we believe that we are born, everyone is born with that sin nature, that we are born spiritually dead because of that sin, it is like that worm is already in there and it eats its way from the inside out. And so in a way, it's a, it's a good example. And of course, we all know that the fruit that Adam and Eve ate was an apple, right? No, we don't know. It says it was a fruit. You know, it's nice. Okay, we can think it was an apple. But in any case, we know that... Um, that there's a pretty good example there, an illustration of how sin works its way from the inside out because we are born with it, just kind of like that apple starts out with that, um, that egg of the worm already inside of it. Well, why do we talk about sin? Because the Bible talks about it, Jesus talks about it, it's right at the very beginning of the story, and in order for us To understand the solution to our problems, we need to know the problem, right? It's like before you can accept a cure, you need to know the disease. And so before we talk about the solution, you need to talk about the problem or the issue. And it is the most serious issue there is. It affects all of creation. Everyone and everything is marred by sin. And we alluded to it last week. We talked about being created in the image of God. That we are all still created in the image of God, but that image has been scarred. That image has been tainted and marred because of sin. So we need to talk about it. Did you know that in Scripture, uh, there's basically three words for grace in all the Bible. Two in the Old Testament in Hebrew, one in the New Testament really in, uh, in Greek. But there's at least 20 for sin. So three for grace and at least 20 different words that are used to describe sin. Normally, it is defined as missing the mark. That word in Greek is hamartia, and that's where we get the term that we're looking at today, the theological term hamartiology. Hamartiology is the study of sin. It's because that Greek word hamartia is the one that's used most uh, in the New Testament, and it means simply to miss the mark. Like if you're shooting an arrow and you miss the target. But think about this, and let's just, just sort of file this away uh, for the rest of our message. But when you miss something, you inevitably are hitting something else. You don't just miss the mark, but in doing so, you are hitting something else. And that's important. So it's not just missing the mark and then there's no consequences, because when you miss the mark, you're hitting something that you shouldn't have been aiming at. Does that make sense? So that's important. So sin really means missing the mark. It also, throughout Scripture, uh, the words used mean rebel or rebellion, evil, being wicked, which means unrighteous. So all those words go together. It also means lawlessness. So sin means lawlessness against the law. First John 3, 4 says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practice lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Why is that important? We're not just talking about the Mosaic law because people were condemned because of their sinful nature before Moses and the law, right? And so, but the law came along and sort of exposed the sin. 
and condemn the people even further, but because everyone since Adam and Eve, we believe, were born with that sin. We'll get to that in a second. That even before the Mosaic Law, that people were condemned uh, because of sin, all right, because of that um, sin nature, right? And so, um, but here's why we say it's lawlessness, because God sets the standard. And I think if nothing else from today, let's remember that, church. Why do we even talk about sin? Well, we have to be able to measure it against something in order to call it such, don't we? I mean, we measure light against darkness. Like, how do we know there's darkness if there's not light, right? How do we know if there's light if there's not darkness? Well, here's the thing. How do we know if it's sin if there is not light, if there is not a standard? So here's the thing. God sets the standard. He is creator. He is the God of the universe. And we go back and think about all those attributes he wrote down in your your notebook about God, that he is omnipresent, he is omniscient, he's omnipotent, he is all those things that we are not. And so we recognize that he is the creator. We are the creation. So therefore, he has all authority to set whatever standard he wants. So how do we know what he wants, what is the standard that we are to measure ourselves against, it's found in the word of God. He has revealed himself to us. So that's how we know if what we're doing is sinful or not. He also gives us the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about him in a a moment. As believers, we have the Holy Spirit indwelling within us to convict us of sin. That's one of the things he does. Because he reveals to us the word of God and convicts us of sin. So we have it here. But see, God sets the standard, and he says, here's my standard. Here's my standard. Before this was complete, we, the, the people of Israel had the, the Mosaic law, the law that God gave to Moses. And it was a good law because it, it kept them in order. It kept them from chaos. It kept them from disease and from many other things. But primarily, it was given to show them that they could not keep it on their own, that they needed God to do it for them. So God sets the standard Therefore, we measure everything against that. Does that make sense? And that's so important we understand that because what happens is, in our sinful nature, we decide that we're going to start setting our own standard, see? That we can decide, well, see, I don't think this is sinful. Or maybe you, what, what you think is sinful, that's okay for you, and, but not for me. And then what's that slippery slope lead to? It's where we are today in our society. It's relativism. There is no more absolute truth, the world tells us. You cannot know absolute truth. But see, in and of itself, that's like an atheistic absolute statement to say there's no absolute truth, right? It doesn't even make sense. But see, we believe in absolute truth that God gets to set the standard and that standard does not change. But see, when everything else is relative, then where do you start? Who gets to set the standard? Who decides what's right or wrong? Well, what we believe is that God decides what's right or wrong. Therefore, we can know what sin is and can define it because he gave us his word, which reveals to us his standard. And you know what his standard is? It's perfection. It's complete righteousness. And it is perfect holiness. Do we meet, do you meet that standard? None of us do. None of us do. And that is because of sin. That's what we're talking about today. So it says um, in um, Psalm 51.5, talking about where this sin comes from. The psalmist says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, 
and in sin did my mother conceive me. So we are born with that sin. We believe that there's three different types of sin overall that the scripture talks about. It's inherited sin, which we kind of already discussed. We inherit it from Adam and Eve. Remember how we talked last week about being created in the image of God? It's kind of like how we, we are made in the image of our parents that we often kind of take on different characteristics, like physical characteristics of our parents for good or for bad, right? Well, it's kind of the same thing with, with, with uh, our original parents, with Adam and Eve, that we take on, we have inherited their sinfulness. So we are born that way. We are born with a sin nature. So that's called the inherited sin. So sin is inherited. It is also what we call imputed. Imputed is like that example that I gave of the, the small fly um, putting in that egg inside of the apple. That's imputation. That is taking something from here and putting it in here. It's like an accounting. It's like taking something from one person's account and putting in somebody else's account. Now, normally we talk about the imputation of righteousness because Martin Luther talked about this, and it's such a beautiful picture, that because of what Christ did for us, church, we recognize that Christ's righteousness and holiness has been imputed to us. It was in his account, and it was given to us and put in our account. You know what happened in what Luther calls that great exchange? Our sin was then imputed to Christ. See that exchange? That's what imputation means. So sin is not only something we inherit in our nature, but is also imputed, meaning that the sin, right, that we have has been imputed to us, meaning that we have it because of Adam. It was put in our account, so therefore our position before God is we are wretched sinners who deserve eternal separation from God. But what Christ did is he took his, what God did through Christ, is took Christ's righteousness, imputed it to us, and took ours and, and imputed it to him. But why is that an important theological concept? Because remember, Jesus was not a sinner. He was the only one who lived a perfect life. And so therefore, on the cross, when we say that he took upon himself the sins of the world, it's important we recognize it doesn't mean he became a sinner. He never sinned himself but our sin was imputed onto him. See that? It was imputed onto him. So before we even breathed the breath, we were an inherited sin. It was imputed to us. But in that great exchange, it was then given over to Christ so that we are now made right before God. Because if you think about it, it all flows through this because if God sets the standard, church, he gets to set the standard what's right and wrong. And if his standard is perfection, we will never be perfect on our own. So therefore, if he's holy, we cannot enter into his presence again unless we're holy. How do we become holy? With Christ's holiness. Christ's holiness, see? So now when God looks on us, he sees the blood of Christ. Because we are made holy in God's sight. That's the only way, church, that we can now be seen by him as holy because of Christ's holiness. But then there's also our individual sin. We'll look at that in a second. So we have inherited sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this. For our sake he made him, the meaning Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. Because he didn't sin himself. So that in him, in Christ, we might become 
the righteousness of God. That's that, that great exchange of imputation. See that? But then there's the individual sin, the sins that we commit every day. Every human being does it. See, because we have inherited sin from Adam, we commit individual personal sins. And those who have not yet placed their faith in Jesus Christ have to pay the penalty for these personal sins in addition to paying the penalty for the inherited and imputed sins. So you say, man, we are behind the eight ball, aren't we? Right? See, but now as Christians, and I speak mainly to believers this morning, we know that in Christ, because his righteousness was given to us, and because we now have the Holy Spirit within us, we now have the power to resist the personal sinning, that individual sinning. See, we're inherited. We inherited sin. We can't do anything about that. <clears throat> the imputed sin, we can't do anything about that. But the individual sins, now in Christ, because of the Holy Spirit's power in us, we can say no to sin. That's why Paul talks about slavery and, and, and slavery all the time. He says, we were once slaves to sin. We couldn't help it because we had a master. And that was our enemy, the devil, the Bible calls him. And, but now in Christ, we are no longer slaves to sin, but we are now slaves to Christ, to his righteousness, right? So that means that we are set free and that we no longer have to say yes to sin because we have that power to resist temptation. Romans 8, 9 through 11. <clears throat> you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. He's talking to believers, okay? If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, he's saying, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ for salvation, he says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ then does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. See, we still have these jars of clay, these earthen vessels that we can't wait to, to shed and get rid of. And so... We have not yet been freed, right, from the presence of sin. We are freed from the power of sin. We don't have to give into it anymore, but the sin is still present, and our bodies are still sinful. When you become a believer, you don't get a brand new body, right? Some of you maybe you prayed for that, and you opened your eyes like, mm, I'm still the same. One day, one day. But then it says this, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. See, we are condemned due to all three types of sin, inherited, imputed, and individual, right? And the only penalty for sin is death. The Bible calls it eternal death or eternal separation from God. Romans 6.23, we know this one. For the wages of sin is death. What do you get when you sin? You deserve death. Because the wages are something you deserve for what you did. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus did it all for us. We don't have to work for it. We don't have to earn it because we don't deserve it. But we know that there is consequence for sin. We cannot leave sin out of the gospel. We cannot leave sin out of the equation. So, what are the consequences of sin for us? What happens specifically for believers? Now, we know as unbelievers that if you're, if you're not yet believing in the Lord Jesus for eternal salvation and in him alone, 
If you've not yet believed that, then sin has condemned you to eternal separation from God. Eternal means forever, without end. And we don't just say that you're sort of having fun just not in God's presence. The Bible calls it hell, and it says that it is a conscious suffering. And yes, this is not fun to talk about. And so in a way, we need to feel and understand the weight of sin because God hates sin. And sin, in its essence, is lawlessness. It's anything that goes against his standard, that rebels against what he says should be, against his reality, not the reality that we make up on our own. But what happens to a believer? Do you ever think about that? What happens if you're a Christian and you sin, what, what's the consequence? Well, you know that you're saved. We believe in the assurance here of our salvation. And so we shouldn't have to question that. But what happens when we as forgiven, not yet perfect, but forgiven Christians, what happens when we do give in to temptation? I'll make it very simple. The Bible talks about fellowship. See, in, in Christ, we have fellowship with God once again. If we're separated because of sin, Christ, we know, bridges that gap and reconnects us to God. He did that for us. But what happens when we then sin? See, we don't break that connection, meaning that we lose our salvation, but what we lose is fellowship. It's like a parent and a child. It's as simple as that. If my son disobeys me, now he's um, 24, but he'll still disobey me, right? He's not living at home, but it still happens. Some of you are like, yeah, amen. I got adult children, same thing. But as a father, if I have a child and in, in, in one of my children, my son disobeys me, that I'm going to be disappointed, I'm going to be upset, my heart will be broken, there will be discipline and consequences, but isn't he still my son? He will always be my son. Nothing can happen to make him not be my son. But what happens when there's disobedience? To a parent, there's broken fellowship. There's tension. There's stress. A couple weeks ago, it was during um, Thanksgiving, my son and I did have an argument, my son Luke, and and he said something that that I probably took the wrong way, but I was offended. And um, looking back, I shouldn't have been. I think he was trying to make a point, even joking around, but at the time, it was just one of those times where you get caught off guard, you know? And so I was really disappointed, and um, I, didn't, I wasn't talking to him, sort of that cold shoulder thing. Did you ever do that to somebody? That's not good. You don't like it when somebody does it to you. And so I avoided him, and we had a house full of people, and boy, that was awkward, and there was tension. And it really took until the following night, so a good 48 hours, and I texted him. I took the cowardly way out. I waited till he left, and I texted him. <laughs> Well, it's so easy to do that, right? You can just say anything in text because they don't have to see your face and read your emotions. And then he texted me back, and we were all good, and we made up, you know. But here's what happened. There was broken fellowship. We were not fellowshipping with another. We weren't enjoying each other's presence. Church, that's what happens. When you're a Christian, a believer, and you sin against God, it is serious, It is serious because it breaks the fellowship. You don't lose your salvation, so don't ever question or doubt that. But what happens is you break that fellowship. God, the God of the universe who made you, is disappointed in you. 
as a child, wasn't that worse? Your parents could yell and scream, and you could like kind of take that. But when they said, I'm so disappointed in you, you're just like, what do you do with that, right? And that's why as a parent, I would say that all the time. Because what are they going to say? But it almost hurts more. But shouldn't, church, shouldn't that hurt us to know that God is disappointed with us? But there will be consequences. And so what do we do? We confess. We can ask for forgiveness. Now we know that our sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven for our eternal state, our eternal position. But we can confess and say, God, I'm sorry. You know what that word confess means? It means to agree with. It simply means to agree with. So when you confess something, you're saying, I agree with what you're saying. I confess it. I agree. So when you confess a sin, it means that you're saying, God, I agree. Your word, your standard says this is a sin, and I did it, so I confess. You're right, and I'm wrong. You're God, and I'm not. That's the way it works. But the consequence is broken fellowship. But see, that can get really bad, especially if it's an habitual sin or if you don't confess it because unconfessed sin will eat away at you. But it eats away at your fellowship, and then it starts to affect your fellowship with other people, your family, your church brothers and sisters. See, that's what happens when a Christian sins. You break that fellowship, it starts to fester, and then what you're doing is you're opening the door, you're giving Satan a foothold. And he will take that opportunity every time to make it worse and worse and worse. Because don't we often in our sinful nature double down on our sin? We sin and, and instead of confessing, we say, no, I'm right, I'm right. And it gets worse and worse and worse. We don't ever want to break fellowship with God. Because what happens is then we stop listening to the Holy Spirit. And then we start being open to other sins. Then we start treating other people differently. Then we forget also who we are. See, like, if my son were to keep being disobedient to me, let's assume in this instance he was the one that was wrong, okay? And so if it just, you know, assume. And so if he keeps being disobedient, it's going to keep breaking that fellowship. It's going to keep getting worse and worse. But then what happens is it's going to affect the way he treats other people, and then it's going to eventually affect the way he sees himself as my son, He's not going to appreciate being my son. You go down that slippery slope, he'll even forget his identity as my son. See, that's what we do, church. When we keep sinning, we forget who God says we are. Because in him, in Christ, we are now called a child of the living God. A son or daughter of the king. And that's who we are in Christ. We will forget the beauty of that relationship. How do we avoid this sin? How about Ephesians 6? When's the last time you read about the full armor of God? Ephesians 6, 12 to 17. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, put on the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of your feet, having put on the readiness given by, that's the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Isn't that a great picture? So how do we try to avoid giving into temptation? Well, God gives us 
all the tools and resources we need. He says, here's all the armor that you need to withstand all the fiery darts of the enemy telling you lies. You're not really a child of God. He doesn't really love you that much. Look at this. You just lost your job. You think God loves you? Isn't that the oldest trick in the book? Isn't that what he told Eve? God didn't say you would die, right? No, he surely didn't mean that. You could be like God. Don't trust him. And then there's that doubt, right? And then everything just springs from that. So we have a protection. We can put on that full armor of God. And it's everything that's written in there. It is standing on the truth. How about the breast, the, uh, the, the belt of truth? What does the belt do? It holds everything up. Right? You stand up and, and your, ball, your, your belt comes unbuckled and your pants fall down. Everything's falling apart. So you put your belt on in the morning, you feel all put together. The truth keeps everything together. See that? The truth keeps everything together. And then you have um, the breastplate of righteousness protecting you. It's huge. A breastplate of righteousness protecting your heart from sin. And then you have with your feet the way that you walk and march. It is the gospel of peace. So we, we, we march along, we walk along with God in peace through the gospel. We have a shield out in front of the, best, the breastplate of faith. That is our faith. We lead and live in faith, don't we? That's what we're called to do. And say so we take up that shield in all circumstances, but then we have the helmet of salvation. What does that helmet do? It protects our mind. So here's why it says that too. We are to remember who we are. Remember that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. It's not of ourselves. When you remember the simple and profound gospel, you're reminded of who you are. You're reminded that you cannot fight the enemy on your own. Because you couldn't save yourself eternally. And we cannot save ourselves from the everyday temptations. So, God, so Jesus says, hey, it's better if I go back to the Father so I can give you the Holy Spirit, and he's the one that's going to help you live that victorious Christian life. Because the Holy Spirit is the one who reveals the truth, reminds you of the truth of God's word that you're reading, and memorizing, he reminds you of that. He convicts you when you're sinning. You know, uh, in society we might say, oh, it's a little person on your shoulder. It's your conscience, right? Who is that? It's the Holy Spirit for the believer doing that. But, of course, we do know that God does discipline those that he loves, right? So, remember who we are in Christ. We are called new creation, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Paul says, the old is gone, the new has come. It is coming. It continues to come in progressive sanctification. It means we spend our whole lives becoming more like Christ. That image being restored, see? But we are disciplined, Hebrews 12, 7 and 8, it is for discipline that you have to endure. See, God's treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. He's saying God disciplines those that he loves. And so there are consequences to sin, even as believers, and they are serious. So we confess them. Psalm 139. Search me, O God, know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. How about that? Confess the sin. Listen, confess the sins you know about and ask God, show me the sins that I don't even realize I committed. How about that? Do we ever take it to that second step? 
right? But what's the beautiful promise? It's in 1 John 1, 9. He's talking to believers. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all righteousness. It is a life of continual purification as we let the Holy Spirit do it. Why? Because he restores fellowship. That's what 1 John's all about. It's about our fellowship with God and restoring that fellowship. But not only that, we are to change. Do you remember? Change our habits. How about this? Do you remember um, when uh, uh, Jesus forgave that woman who was caught in adultery? Remember what he said to her? What did he say? He said, go and what? Go and sin no more. But he said, go. There's two things there. He says, go to the woman, which means you're free. You are forgiven. Go means you don't have to stay and be disciplined anymore. Go means you have been set free. But he says, go and keep sinning? No. He says, go and sin no more. So it's both of those things. It's you are free. You are released from the bondage of sin. You don't have to pay that penalty. But then don't keep doing it. He says, go, because you're set free. But sin no more. Don't keep sinning. So what does that mean for us? We remember who we are. And say, I don't have to give in to that sin. But if there's those sins that we habitually give into, and for all of us it's different, there's some sins that you are just so weak against that you're continually praying that the Holy Spirit helps you with. And that might not be a temptation at all for somebody else. That's the way it works. But see, if we remember that in our salvation, which is supernatural, our natural sinfulness has been transformed. There's a transformation that takes place. That's why Paul can say, 2 Corinthians 5.17, that we are new creations, right? And so we know that before Christ, the things of God are foolishness, 1 Corinthians 2.14. That we are in a, spirit, a state of spiritual death. We are unable and unwilling to follow and obey God. But Paul then says we are made new. And we are then in the process of sanctification, which means being conformed by the Holy Spirit into the image of Christ, Romans 8, 29. And I think I'll end with this. And, you know, I think this should be, uh, this should be um, encouraging and comforting to you. When's the last time you read Romans 7 when Paul just gets real? Paul gets real and he says, I don't understand my own actions. This is Romans 7, 15 to 25. He goes, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That's the Apostle Paul saying that. That is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Do you ever feel like that? Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. He's saying he's given over to sin. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Remember that. When you're trying to do the right thing and be obedient, evil is close at hand. 
For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being. That's that new creation in Christ. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But see, he doesn't leave it there, and neither will we. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. See, church, that's why we say, man, why do I still struggle with sin? We have been forgiven. We are eternally secure, made right with God. Spiritually speaking, we are now alive when we were dead before Christ. But sin is still present. We have not yet been made perfectly holy. It's a process in this life. We don't attain it on this side of heaven, but we are to seek after it. We are to seek after it. He says, be holy because I am holy. And that is our calling as Christians, that we are to do that, to become more and more like Christ. Right? So we are to submit ourselves to God and say no to sin. James 4, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. But draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He's talking to believers. This is what we do. We are to resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Do you remember that story of, <laughs> that story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife? When she was chasing after him, chasing after him, and what did he do? He ran, he got out of there so fast he left his coat behind. Joseph had to run away from sin. Why? Because the temptation was so strong. He couldn't just stand there anymore and say, no, I'm not going to do that. No, I'm not going to sleep with you. I'm not getting to bed with you because you're, you're somebody else's wife. He can't just stand there and say that. It got so bad, the sin, the temptation kept pressing and pressing, and he hightailed it out of there. Sometimes we need to do that. We recognize what our temptations are. And sometimes you turn it around and it's facing you. Or sometimes you see it in the distance and you're drawn towards it. No, I could take a little step. This isn't hurting. I can get a little bit closer. That's not a problem. But you know what we're called to do? We're told to turn and run the other way. That's what repentance is. When you repent of your sins, it's a change of mind. It's saying, well, I used to think one way about this sin, but now I know it's a sin, and so now I'm going to change my mind about it. I'm going to go this way. I'm going to think differently. That's what repentance is. And so what's the good news? So we remember who we are in Christ that we have the full armor of God to put on to help resist temptation. But we know there are consequences to sin. We break fellowship with God. But what is the great promise? Philippians 1.6. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Jesus won't give up on you. You keep fighting those battles. But let him fight the battles for you, see? Paul even says it in that, that, that great thing in Romans 7. He says, I can't do it. I realize I can't, I can't say no to temptation on my own. I need the Holy Spirit within me to do it. And finally, the last verse for today, Ephesians 1, 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Isn't that beautiful? So there's the hope. What's the promise? The promise is John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe, does it say whoever would do enough good things? 
Does it say who would ever would pray enough prayers? No, it says who would ever would believe in him would never die but have everlasting life. That is why John 3.16 is probably the most well-known verse of all of Scripture, isn't it? For God so loved the world. See, here's the gospel. Here is the gospel. There is a problem. We start with that. We cannot, we cannot proclaim the gospel, church, without first talking about the problem. That's why today we talked about sin. There is a problem. The problem is we are sinners in need of a Savior. But there is provision. First, there's a problem. There's a provision made. God says, you need a Savior. That's the problem. I'll bring you the Savior. The provision is that God provides the Savior, see? And so that Savior is a person. So there's a problem. There's a provision from God. But there is that person. It is not just belief in Jesus as a human being. It's believing. When you say you believe, John 3, 16, you are believing in who God says he is and what he said he would do for you. God said, uh, Jesus said he was God. He said that he would die and come back to life. If you believe that and accept that as true, then you say, I trust that for my eternal salvation. I trust that what Jesus did on the cross, that God accepted his payment, his sacrifice by raising him from the dead. It says in there and there alone is salvation. Because there is a problem. We are sinners in need of a Savior. There is provision from God. He provides the Savior. That person is Jesus Christ. Believing in who he said he is and what he said he was going to do. But then where does that leave us? It leaves us with the promise of John 3, 16. That whosoever would believe in him would never have eternal death, but would have eternal life. Now, in this life, we know physically we still die. We still struggle with sins. But if we believe in him, we are reconnected with our Savior. Because what the Bible tells us, that problem is a very real problem where it all starts. That apart from Christ, we cannot attain holiness to be reconnected with our Creator. So therefore, we are doomed to eternal separation from him. And the Bible does not paint it as a pretty picture. But he says, I will provide the solution to that problem. Why did he have to provide it? Why is it so important that Jesus claimed to be God? Because only God is perfect. And only God could be the perfect sacrifice. John the Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was the perfect Lamb of God without blemish. It's only Jesus can reconnect us with our God and our maker. That's the, the gospel. There is a problem. But there is a person who is the provision that then gives us a promise. Amen.